This is Valor Radio. Valor, strength of mind and spirit that enables a person to face danger with resolve and determination in battle or in any other situation. Valor, like that displayed by veterans of every branch of the military throughout our community. This radio show, Valor Radio, salutes all of you who have raised your right hands to volunteer to protect and preserve our unique American way of life. Thanks for joining us and your brothers and sisters in uniform. When liberty's in jeopardy, I will always do what's right. I'm out here on the front line, sleep in peace tonight, American soldier. Now, Valor Radio. Well, hello and welcome, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coasties, Guardians, and civilians serving by their side. We bring you in here to the Big Ten of Valor Radio. Thanks so much for joining us uh, for the Colonel and the Captain. They're, they're battering back and forth as we start the show doing Hawaiian, you know, like a waka waka and kamanawalea and all that stuff. That they... Mele kamalikimaka. Yeah. See, that's right. Wow. Merry, Merry Christmas to you, too. That's right. Hi. Hi. <laughs> well, listen, I tell you what, I, I'm just feeling so safe this morning because I know that, you know, they've taken away all the Second Amendment rights in Albuquerque. Right. It yeah. makes, makes me, gives me that warm feeling. Is that just sheer lunacy? It's just. What was, what was, I don't know what that governor's name is. is, she, is she, uh, Grisham is her name? Grisham. Grisham. Yeah. What, what a nip. With a hyphen. How, how could she possibly. Hyphenated Grisham something. Yeah. There's a dead she giveaway. must have had that plan in mind. Dead, I mean, dead giveaway right there. Yeah. What pushes all of a sudden pushes her over the edge to try to do something like that? I don't know. Was there some precipitating thing we missed in New Mexico? Well, or? the year old boy got shot outside a baseball game. All right. Well, that's come on now. I mean, we've, we got to take away everybody's gun rights when that happens. <sighs> wow. I mean, the Democrats are deploring her. Take aim at foot. Yeah. I mean, you know, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, there's no way that's going to no. make constitutional muster. No. It's just like, you know, let's march off to defeat. So so you were right. Steve and I were bantering about Hawaii before the break. Steve spent a lot more time there than I did. But, uh, but I was, we were both there on 9-11. Yeah, I was there for a short tour. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah and different per- – I, I don't know. So your perspective might be a little different than mine because I you were there. You were assigned there, but uh, I ended up getting stuck there for quite a while. Someone had to do it. Yeah. Well, uh, um, well, <laughs> well after 9-11, people couldn't get off the island. Yeah. And I actually had to fly back uh, to go to planning meetings. Did you? Um, and I was on one of the first flights out of Hawaii – Hmm. Uh, to fly back for this meeting, and I will tell you what it was. It was the experience at the airport. I can only imagine. Uh, you know, in the terminal, you know the terminal in oh, Honolulu, yeah. beautiful terminal. It is it's, nice it's terminal. an outdoor type terminal. I mean, the the pathways are open as soon as you, as soon as they open up the door of the airplane when you land or the jet, you can yeah. smell the flowers. Yeah, right? you can. Pool yeah, area, it's, yeah. It's just unbelievable. But um, in the terminal, waiting to go. It was a you know big planes. They have to be big jets have mm-hmm. to fly. You can't yeah. fly little puddle jumpers, and so everybody's waiting to get on. And this is right after nine eleven, and no one knows what the hell's going on. No. And I will tell you, there were two hundred, three hundred people with their backs against the wall, all the way surrounding, 
you know, in that there wasn't one person sitting down. Everybody really? had their backs up against the wall, not because they were told to, but everybody standing there looking at everyone. You want to talk about ultimate paranoia? Oh, it was no just kidding. What an experience that was. Everybody's looking at everybody, and no one wants to look at anybody too long, and no one would sit wow. down. It was really it was sort of a bizarre type thing. So, um, with I, their pineapples. Yeah, I had just um, arrived on Sunday on 9 9 was my first day of work right monday so my clock's all messed up 6 hours <laughs> I mean, a big difference in I times know it. right i know all about it right so i'm 3 o'clock in the morning 2:30 in the morning i didn't turn the tv off trying to go to sleep the little noise in the background i'm f- tossing and turning and the first plane hits the world trade center and they're reporting, and I might have had CNN on or something. I don't know what was on. They're reporting that it was a small private plane that flew into the World Trade Center. And I'm tossing and turning, but I'm saying, right? No how, way. How stupid can anybody be to fly a small airplane? And you know, I'm thinking the guy might probably wanted to commit suicide or something. Right. But there, no one knows anything. Right. No. And they're saying it was just a small private plane. And this is the first reports that are coming in. I'm and I'm tossing and turning, and then all of a sudden. The second one hits, and um, I was at Schofield, mm-hmm. and you would have thought at that moment, like everything changed. It was the, the middle of the night. It was. Yeah, it I was. Yeah, and all I'll, of a sudden, alarms going off all over the base. Everything really? else, alarms were going off. Yeah, yeah, lights were coming on, sirens were going off. Oh wow! And so I got up and got dressed. It was like three thirty in the morning, and. There's Schofield, and then there's sort of an annex across where the airfield is across right. the road. Huh. Yeah, right. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Wheeler, Wheeler, Wheeler Army. Army. Right. Yeah. So, and there's no walking. I mean, so I had a car, uh, and so I drove over. My office was over on, on that side of the, the base, and by the time I got there, it was 4.15 or something mm-hmm. in the morning. All the lights are on. Everybody's in the office. Isn't that something? And it was just when I, when I, when I drove from uh, from where I lived in Waipahu to uh, to Pearl Harbor, there was nobody on the on the highway, not a soul. Right, and then and then um, they started putting up. They started securing the island. Do you, oh, you remember wow. this? Oh boy, what do you a remember mess. this? With yeah, the I concertina around everything, and they had set up like MPs and mm-hmm. shore patrol. They had they had put security points outside the gates. Nobody knew what was going on. Right, yet. the Holly Cola. Right, right, They completely surrounded the Holly Cola. You, you know, though, and, uh, you know, when I was speeding down that the expressway, getting going to, into work, because I, you know, I was mad because I knew what happened, and I figure most of the people in, uh, who are on duty right now don't even know what's going on. I was driving down past the Arizona Memorial, and I looked over at the Arizona, and I thought, now I think I understand how they felt. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, just absolutely. So um, it just, what a change. What a change. day. What a yeah, day and what that it, was. And what, how it changed. How it changed. And, uh, you know, obviously all the people that died on 9-11, the 6,500 yeah. that have died since then in the military fighting Is that how many? the war on terror. 60, yeah, the exact number, 65. Oh, in the wars, 66. yeah. Uh, and then war. all the people who died from illness. Right. Uh, you know. Right. We can't even quantify yeah, that. No one terrible. has any idea. But but just how it changed everyday life. Yeah, and it, sure it's did. interesting. You know, I'm teaching at MCC. So these kids are, the youngest are 18. So they were born. Yeah. Well after 9-11. Isn't that something? And I was in class the other day. 
And what I what was interesting to me, I, you know, I'm my dad was a World War II vet. Your dad's a World War II vet. So when we were kids, when we were five and six, seven, eight years old, um, World War II was twenty years away. You know, twenty plus right, years, right. right? Yeah, not even. Right. I mean, I'm, I was born in '58, so you know, I'm thinking seven, eight year old. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's only 20 years after World right. War II, and it seemed like it was so far away. And so I'm, I'm trying to give a little perspective to these kids, but you look at these blank stares on their face. And the, and the thing that was different about World War II is that, uh, you know, 30% of all the males in the United States served in World War II. Is that is 30%? Yeah, 15% of the population, 30% males wow. um, yeah. served in World War II. But everybody was involved one way or another. Yeah. I mean, it was a full, you know, whether you were... <laughs> All hands up or... Victory yeah. Garden or whatever you were doing. Right, right. Everything, you know, industry... Was affected every, by it, yeah. Industry, everything went... So, but to this day, I, George Bush standing up and saying, go shopping. Yeah, oh, I, I know. And no, instead still- of putting us on a war footing and... Um, and and so I, I just very very frustrating thinking about the last twenty years and the lives and and the wasted hmm. wasted lives and yeah. honorable service by all but the people in charge just really did screw the pooch. Um, all right, well let's keep those who have uh, suffered uh, or died uh, since uh, 9-11 in our thoughts and our prayers this week. Hearing some music, we'll be right back with more of Valor Radio. On the WISO stations, 92.1 FM, 95.5 FM West, AM 1040, and the new website, WISO1040.com for the stream. Your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, livery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award, MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Finger Lakes Fire and Casualty, Route 227, Trumansburg, New York. The colors are red for valor, white for innocence, and blue for justice. Our nation's flag proclaims liberty for all. And our military service members continue to fight for the right to live in freedom. Honor their service and sacrifice with an American-made flag from the Stars and Stripes Flag Store. Visit eflagstore.com to shop now. All proceeds support Veterans Outreach Center and local veterans. Join Abate Monroe County, American bikers aimed toward education and help adult bikers ride free and safe. Check out our meetings on the third Friday monthly at Wise Guys Diner and Catering, 2811 Dewey Avenue. Join Abate for less than 50 cents a week. Google Abate Monroe County on the web. 
Hey, how about becoming a member of the National Warplane Museum in Geneseo, New York? Help us preserve history. Plus, you get some pretty fancy benefits. Visit us online, nationalwarplanemuseum.com. If you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, please call the Veterans Crisis Line at 988 and then press 1. Donate now, vocroc.org. From Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks and from Canada to Pennsylvania, you're listening to Valor Radio. Welcome back to Valor Radio with the Colonel and the Captain on WISL. Thanks, Robert. You know that once so, um, time, I didn't Steve, you, you sent a note this week. You wanted to talk about some Rochester folks um, that... Uh, uh, Paid the price, gave sacrifice, uh, ultimate sacrifice, and during Operation Market Garden. Right. And I don't think most people today. I can look, give them a little, just a little overview of what the operation right, was about. I, right. And uh, uh, really, it's. I mean, it's been uh, you know lots of books written about it. Yeah. Movies made. A lot of movies. Um, but uh, still, uh, one of the most impressive attempts. <laughs> Uh, in military history, uh, mm. I mean, operationally. Tell, tell, tell them what Market Garden was. Yeah. Uh, operation Market Garden was an Allied airborne and ground operation fought in the German-occupied Netherlands from 17 to 27 September 44. Only 10 days long, the right. campaign. Its objective was to create roughly a 65-mile salient to, from the Belgian border into Germany with a bridgehead over the Rhine River. To accomplish that, the Allies would have to uh, take hold of three major bridges. There were, I guess there were nine bridges in all. But the ones that they always talk about are the one at Eindhoven, Grave, and Arnhem. Uh, With a combined U.S.-British airborne force, the market part of the operation, followed by a British land force garden part of the the operation. Speed was a critical factor in the operation. The plan was devised by General uh, Bernard Montgomery, calling for a 48-hour timetable to get the British uh, in position to make the Rhine crossing. It was the largest airborne operation of the war up to that period, and it involved four airborne divisions. The U.S. 101st Airborne Division under Major General Maxwell Taylor, the U.S. 82nd Airborne Division under Brigadier General James Gavin, the 1st Airborne Division of the British under Major General Roy Urquhart, and the uh, Polish 1st uh, Independent Parachute Brigade under Brigadier General Stanislaus Sosabowski. The operation was designed to push into Germany in 1944 and end the war by Christmas. And so, folks, just understand, talking about this was when uh, Steve said 65 miles, this was 65 miles behind enemy lines. The lines were very... Through the SS. Right. Yeah. Right. This was to drop people at, you know, like the 15-mile mark, the 40-mile mark, and the 65-mile mark. These were entrenched Nazis. They've been there for several years. Right, right. These were built-up defenses, and everything had sort of stalled. And, you know, leading up to that, I mean, I think, once again, we, we focus on that operation. But, once again, Montgomery was responsible for that northern sector of Europe, and... You know, if you if you read Patton's stuff, uh, he always thought that Montgomery was too tentative, always trying to get things just perfect before he would go. He wanted to have overwhelming superiority in numbers before he attacked. Right, and he 
so this was out of character for Montgomery. This yeah, it was a, it was a roll of the dice. And, well, I think it was more of his ego trying it was. to exactly to, what to, it was to put you know the emphasis back on what was post, happening up post D Day, right? And um, I mean, he was he he was getting he was getting the bulk of the support. You know, the, the Americans. I mean, Eisenhower really did mm-hmm. do a good job holding everyone together. All these well, he personalities. took a lot of flack because he was supposed to be in uh, in con. By like D plus, I don't know, uh, D plus twenty one or something right. like that, and it was taking a lot, a lot longer to get to get Khan uh, in our hands and under control, uh, and he took a lot of a heat in it publicly because, you know, people were saying, oh, the guy's overrated. He's, you know, his he doesn't know how to, uh, you know, how to how to lead, uh, and uh, he, I think he was feeling the the political pressure to do something. Right, and then you know, Patton's turning Third Army. You know, and moving them 120 miles for the Battle of the Bulge, um, yeah, just was such going off the map, right? Just spectacular, spectacular feat. I mean, just to even you know to this day, I know it's it's um, it's hard to imagine. um, You know, I I know in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, I know uh, Seventh Corps moved. 125 miles across, laterally across the desert, so it could come up. You know the Hail Mary they talked right. about. Um, I, I, and we weren't, we weren't being shot at, and it wasn't winter, and you know people were still fresh at that point. But I still remember what it was like to move that 125 miles through the desert and get set up for Operation Desert Storm. I, you know, to think about what these guys who had been fighting already since D Day, and um, to you know to be able to turn right. an entire so, army. And, and this is urban fighting, right? They, right. They, when they were in Arnhem, they were fighting house to house. So uh, this operation was this an, a thing to inflate his ego? Whatever yeah. it seemed, it seemed too optimistic. It seemed way too optimistic. Yeah, even as British generals weren't enthusiastic about the plan right except for uh boyd browning right i mean the polish the polish general never yeah. he was a little bit he wasn't real a happy bit, a little bit miffed uh yeah, yeah. He, he basically he, he he felt like he was being pressed into doing it he didn't want to do it right that they were just being held up he didn't some of the people and that's probably why they put the british and the uh polish on the northernmost point yeah um but boy, what a fight it was! So anyway, it was an amazing fight. Yeah, it really and was. And we lost uh, one, two, three, four, five, five uh, brave souls uh, in in that uh, two in that two week period. And I just want to go through as quickly as I can. Um, First Lieutenant John Corsetti, U.S. Army Air Force, was twenty seven years old. He was a C forty seven pilot with the four forty second Troop Carrier Group of the Ninth Air Force. He was killed in action the first day of the battle, seventeen September, over Holland. He had a very distinguished combat record, uh, 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 he uh, did Lieutenant Corsetti. He had the Army, he was awarded the Army Distinguished Service Cross, which is the highest service award. Uh, the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters and, the pur- and a purple heart. He was a graduate of West High School, and before the war he lived with his parents at 301 Arnett Boulevard. There's Arnett Boulevard again. Right down the street from me. Yeah, Arnett Boulevard lost a lot yeah. of our, our boys. Um, and he's buried in Holy Sepulchre Cemetery, Section 17 North. And I will tell you, there were still corsettis when I was growing up. You're kidding. In the 60s, yes. yes. Well, we're going to get to you in a second here. Sergeant <laughs> Robert L. Donalds, U.S. Army, was 23 years old, glider infantryman with Company G, 3rd Battalion, 325th Glider Infantry Regiment, 82nd Airborne Division. Killed in action 30 September 44 at a place called Keekberg Woods, Bredeveg, Holland. Uh, he was destined to be a paratrooper, in my opinion. 
was an accomplished athlete before the war, playing varsity football for Aquinas Institute, class of 42. Who do my, we know? My dad's class. There you go. At Aquinas. Uh, and he also he did uh, Edison Tech High b- uh, before that. He was previously employed by Bausch and Lomb and served as an assistant scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts of America. Uh uh, he was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart. His wife lived at 243 Milburn Street, and he's buried at Holy Sepulchre, Section 13 North. <laughs> Staff Sergeant John C. Milonis, U.S. Army, 19 years old, an airborne paratrooper, a 19-year-old Staff Sergeant, uh, uh, Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne. He was awarded the Legion of Merit. I don't, I don't know too many enlisted guys who got the Legion of Merit in World War II. Uh, and, and a Purple Heart with uh, Oakley Cluster for saving the life of a fellow soldier by forcing a German deserter to carry his buddy to safety. He was a graduate of Madison High School. Uh, his wife lived with his parents at 61 Edinburgh Street. And he's buried in Netherlands American Cemetery in Margrethe in Holland. What a guy. Private Eugene M. Moran, U.S. Army, 27 years old, glider infantryman, uh, 327th Glider Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division, killed in action in a glider crash uh, 19 September in Belgium. In Belgium, uh, posthumously awarded the Purple Heart. His, this, see, this, this is really strange. His wife, Emma, lived at 221 Walker Sweden Road in Hilton. Eugene was the brother of PFC William S. Moran, who was killed at the Battle of the Bulge on 24 January 45, and was the cousin of PFC Alan Guyette, who was killed in action in the Pacific 29 January 44. Now, Moran's wife, Emma, uh, maiden name Reed Moran, had a twin sister, Martha Reed Moran, who married his brother, William, who died at the Battle of the Bulge. Can you imagine? Incredible. Yeah. Uh, Martha eventually remarried in 53, by the way. And finally, First Lieutenant William C. Yeager, U.S. Army Air Force, 23 years old, was a C-47 pilot with the 85th Troop Carrier Squadron of the 437th Troop Carrier Group, 9th Air Force. Um, again, another SkyTrain uh, hero. He was awarded the DFC, I'm sorry, the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal with two Oakley Clusters and a Purple Heart. There's some confusion on the record as to wh- whether he was from um, uh, Cook County, Illinois, or, or, or Monroe County. Uh, the War Department listed him as from Cook County, Illinois, but the National Archives recorded his enlistment here in Monroe County, 10 April 42. Lieutenant Yeager lived with his wife and his parents at 202 Field Street. He played amateur football with a local team called the Invaders, <laughs> nice name, while living in Aronaquite prior to uh, his enlistment. And he is also buried in the Nethers, Netherlands American Cemetery in Margrethe in Holland. Wow. God bless those guys. For sure. And their families. And yeah. their families. Yeah. That's just, Isn't that um, awful? Can you imagine the, 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 uh, the, the tumult in the family of, uh, uh, you know, of those two gals who married Two, two brothers, two brothers lost them both. Both get killed in the uh, battle of the ball. Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just uh, absolutely amazing. And you know, in, in the, the campaign um, was considered a debacle, and uh, we went on with the war, but all those guys died, and um, we never got to Berlin in '44. Uh, so that, that was took, it. Took a little longer. They made a movie about it in 1977 called 
uh, a bridge too, too far. far. And yeah. I, you know, I just happened to have uh, the overture from that, uh, uh, and I, and from it, that film. It would be nice to hear, just to remind us. All right, so set this, set this up for us, Captain. So the bridge, bridge too far, the film, and, and so. Oh, forth. bridge too far was uh, was an ep- was an epic World War II movie that was probably up until Private Ryan. I considered it the best World War II film ever made. It was directed by Richard Attenborough. It was uh, produced by Joseph E. Levine, and it uh, it used uh, at the time in '77. There were still a lot of flying uh, C-47s, and if you see the the scene where they take off with the uh, the gliders, it's just phenomenal. They, they they got dozens of these planes, painted them in the uh, D-Day markings, and had them towing gliders, and it, it's beautiful to watch. They actually used real paratroopers from uh, our NATO allies in those planes. So when you see these guys jumping out of planes, that's not computer generated. Those are really guys jumping out of planes. Yeah, I think there's nine. What fun! What fun that would have been. It must have been nine fun, B-17s huh? left, I think. Yeah. In flying condition. We'll be back here on Valor Radio. Niagara Falls to the Adirondacks and from Canada to Pennsylvania. You're listening to Valor Radio. We're back in here with Valor Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell a buddy about the program. We'd appreciate that. And if you missed the show, www.wisl1040.com. Get the podcast. Just click on the podcast navigation. Again, here is Colonel Paul Simonelli. Thanks, Robert. So, Steve, you know, I'm an Army guy. Feet firmly on the ground. Yeah. Green. Green. And, you know, to me, one Navy ship is the same as any other Navy ship. You know, a lot of gray paint, a lot of smelly no. wharfs. No. Um, no. Except for aircraft carriers, because those are the cool guys with the Ray-Ban there's, sunglasses. There's, smell. There's, there's something, if you've ever, never been around a Navy ship, if you've ever been on one, the smell of diesel yes. brings it all back. I mean, yeah. I, sometimes I'll forget what it's like, and then I'll just go to a mu- one of those ship museums, right. and I'll smell the diesel, and it all or, comes flooding or, back. Or the JP-4, you yeah. know, the exhaust from jets and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. Go. It sure does. But uh, like I said, for us, you know, ground pounders. Yeah. You know, one ship's the same as another, and so if the Navy wants to build ships, they build ships, and right. some are a little bit longer, some are a little bit shorter, mm-hmm. but that, you know, I saw this article this week about how the Navy spent billions on a little crappy ship. Terrible. What? I mean... Terrible what it, they did. It looks pretty cool. doesn't look like the paint's chipping on it. What? Well, because they're brand new. <laughs> well, even though I hear, uh, according to the reports... Uh, internally, these things are rusting like nobody's business. Well, I, we've had this we've had this discussion before. I don't think the steel no. produced today is even close to the steel that was produced fifty or sixty, well, seventy years sailors, ago. You know, chipping and scraping. Yeah, that's, that's actually kind of a discipline thing. You you keep them busy by making them chip and scrape, but. Uh, you know the thing is now they have contractors doing all that stuff and and do they really they do and uh and it's terrible because 
Um, people send me pictures all the time of, yeah, this particular ship came in port the other day, and I, and I went to see it. This is what it looks like. And they show me these rust bucket pictures of the U.S. Navy ships, and they look awful. I mean, it, as a source of pride, I'm offended when I see these ships in that kind of disrepair. So I don't I don't mean to some give me I mean my thought is you're on a ship, you got no place to go. Yeah. Um I'm talking about like enlisted guys. Right. They have what a 12-hour shift on, 12 off or or uh, eight on, on eight off sections or, you got I mean it, your in-port routine is completely different No, no, I'm than talking about but, uh, but why would a boat come in looking like crap? Cuz when you're out there, unless you're I mean there's a few hours a day, always you, you to would do that never, kind of stuff. You would never let the crew have liberty until the ship was presentable. If, right. if the ship That's looked like I mean. hell yeah. coming into port, they'd say, you know what? All It's an all-hands effort. We're going to get this ship looking ship shape. Uh, so that when you when you walk off the brow on Liberty in your in your uh, you know in your Hawaiian shirt or whatever because that was one thing that was disappointing when I got to the ship to, to know that people didn't leave the ship in uniform. I mean, uh-huh. you, you didn't go on Liberty in uniform in Europe when I was stationed in, in the, the Med, and only if you were on official business were you in uniform. But um, if you went off the ship and, and, and went on Liberty. Uh, everything had to be a dress right dress before you well, got off. That I mean, the only thing I can compare that to when you're not in the field or someplace, and you know Friday would roll around, and the motor pool right the would motor, be pristine. The, the, the tanks, pool. the tanks would be right. perfectly lined up. They'd be clean. They'd be greased. You know, everything would be ship shape, and the motor pool would be clean. Right. And then we talk about. Right. Let's leave for the weekend That's or it. the long weekend or something. But that, that was your there was your reward for doing your job. Right. But your job job one was to have everything perfect. I mean, so, it, it was ready to go. So I guess so. What's the the work cycle on a ship? I mean, it seems that this should be part of the day, no matter what. And well, if you do it a little bit at a time. Rather than you well, know having it, to jump through hoops, they're, they're, they got some kind of import routine that's just not working for them. Yeah, if so you wh- got, if you got ships that that look uh, materially uh, rough, uh, there's something wrong with how you're you're doing your watch sections, and you need to get people in the game. And and you know um, a lot of it is heavy, uh, arduous labor, it, chipping and scraping and painting. And uh, moving stuff around, machinery to get stuff, uh, you know, uh, cleaned up and and uh, you know, rust free is a twenty four seven job. And and there are a lot of females on those ships that can't handle the weight of uh, of uh, uh, you know the, all those hammers and those uh, uh, you know those uh, uh, paint cans. And I mean, it's it's tough work. And you got to get everybody out there doing it. So if they're going to have the crew out there, everybody has to be a part of the the solution and not part of the problem. All right, I didn't mean to get distracted here, but you know, there's this this Freedom Class Literal Combat Ship, the USS Little Rock. What what's the deal? What's the, wrong with our billion dollar well, ship? Well, it was a poorly designed, poorly conceived. I mean, I didn't know the history of how it was conceived. And when I read that article, it made me wretch because it sort of turns out in 2002, uh, Admiral Vernon Clark, who was the chief of naval operations, just happened to be on a Danish ship that happened to have um, – it was a small uh, ship that had a small crew and it had a, uh, an interchangeable weapon uh, suite 
that that he thought was really nifty. And when he saw that, he was like bowled over. And next thing you know, the guy was on a kick to get those ships built in the U.S. Navy, and he wanted an entire class of them. They had originally planned for 50 of these ships. They were supposed to cost um, – um, uh, they ended up costing $500 million apiece. We only ended up getting uh, 32 uh, programmed for uh, – and I think I don't think they built quite that many. But all the ones that they built so far, they're all being put in – into uh, um, out of, taken out of service, and they're scrapping them. They're not even giving them to the Coast Guard. They, they're considered <laughs> such poorly designed ships. Uh, uh, there's a lot of corrosion from salt water, something called galloping corrosion, which I've never heard of before. Um, one sailor described the engine room as a, quote, horror show, unquote, with rust eating away at machinery. Um, the top Navy leadership repeatedly dismissed or ignored warnings about the ship's flaws. The idea for the littoral combat ship came from CNO Vern Clark, uh, and he announced uh, um, uh, he, he announced uh, envisioned a small ship, lightly armed and manned by only about forty sailors, with weapon systems not permanently installed that could be switched out according to the mission, and that has not happened. And they have a huge uh, uh, engine flaw that's keeping them all. I mean, a bunch of them have had to be towed back to port, and it's just embarrassing. Yeah. And, and, and 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 they doubled down on failure from one Secretary of Navy to the other. It started with um, uh, with um, who's the that my favorite uh, C, uh, 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 Navy Secretary was? Uh, I can't remember his name now. I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, right now it's Del Toro, and Del Toro is still trying to spackle over all the problems. Um, but uh, um, Ray Mabus, Ray oh, Mabus yeah. was the guy who literally did more to destroy the U.S. Navy, in my opinion, than any single person in human history. But uh, Ray Mabus uh, was a big proponent of these ships, and when he left, uh, he left a mess on the table. And right now they're trying to clean up the mess. They want to get rid of all of them so they can save all that money and put it toward big ships. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's it is it is. You know, we we saw another uh, the continuation or maybe the final chapter of the uh, um, rebranding of military bases and locations and monuments. Um, The army, yeah, sent a recall out. So after a major campaign, Bob, in the military, uh, the unit gets uh, a ribbon that. You know, connotes that there was a part of this major campaign. It's a streamer. It's, it's a streamer. A, it's that like goes, a silk streamer that, that they, goes on the the guide on on the flag that represents the unit. So you know, if you look at the army flag that they have at the Pentagon, that they it's got hundreds, oh, hundreds. of streamers on it from every campaign that every the army, single campaign that the army participated. Right. But then individual units, if they were participants, they get a streamer. So now the army has recalled um, streamers. From National Guard units in the South, they've ordered all the National Guard units to send them in, mail them to us. We want you to go for, into your, your your trophy case. More more Ministry of Truth uh, yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. big yeah. time. Yeah, and big time. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, it, they're literally taking them out of the trophy case where they've been for a hundred years, and they're telling us send these to us. And all of a sudden, and they basically gave them a deadline. And you know that some states. We're like slower to get them. Like South Carolina just made the deadline. Theirs are actually in the mail. 
in Alabama's didn't get there in time because people in Alabama were like, I'm not giving these things up. And they're worried now that individual soldiers are, are, are keeping them for their own memorabilia collections. Yeah. So... Anyway, priorities. I mean, what the, the is woke, going on? The woke freaking military. I'm for sure. You. For sure. So, uh, all right. Well, we're here. That's some as music. bad as it gets, Paul. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I, it really feel, is. I feel. I mean, I really feel for the army. I, yeah. I, I'm sad for you guys. Yeah. I am. So, all right. Uh, we'll be back shortly with more of Valor Radio. Your go-to for standard of specialized business insurance coverage. MGM Associates of Rochester, now serving the region and beyond in New York. Since 1984, MGM has provided leading coverage from a wide range of carriers. Not only home, condo, boat, motorcycle, and auto, but also specialized policies for all types of businesses, including nonprofits and law firms, livery insurance, property insurance, and bonds for all needs. MGM Associates of Rochester provides auto, workers' comp, health care, and liability coverage. Choose from virtual appointments or good old in-office, in-person consults by appointment at our Penfield office. Five-time consecutive winner of the National Best Practices Award. MGM is proud to support veterans groups. For your personal business, home, or professional insurance needs, meet the experienced staff at MGM Associates. Locally and proudly owned at 1745 Penfield Road in Penfield, 381-7008 or mgminsure.com. An associate of Finger Lakes Fire and Casualty, Route 227, Trumansburg, New York. The colors are red for valor, white for innocence, and blue for justice. Our nation's flag proclaims liberty for all, and our military service members continue to fight for the right to live in freedom. Honor their service and sacrifice with an American-made flag from the Stars and Stripes Flag Store. Visit eflagstore.com to shop now. All proceeds support Veterans Outreach Center and local veterans. As a veteran of the United States military, I can finally get the opportunity to enjoy special events, things that we couldn't afford, thanks to Ventix. Every empty seat at a concert, a game, or a play is a missed opportunity to say thanks to a veteran and service member. We can give our veterans a special event where they, too, can create their own cherished memories. Visit VetTix.org. Find out how you can make a difference in a veteran's life. You're listening to Valor Radio with Colonel Paul Simonelli. A little Jewish girl from Philadelphia called herself Diane Renee. I think her real name was Kushner or something, as I recall. Anyway, we are back to Valor Radio with the Colonel and the Captain. Thanks, Robert. So, uh,. We're talking about a lot of things. We were talking about Market Garden, um, talking about the generals involved in that. Uh, and, you know, we've, on, I know on the show sometime in the past, Steve, before you were here, we talked about the book, The Generals, uh, Thomas Ricks wrote. Not the perfect book. Don't agree with every premise in there. But uh, bottom line is that, uh, you know, since World War II, we really haven't done a great job raising gen- growing generals and um, 
for a lot of different reasons. You know, in the late seventies, early eighties, when the military, late or well, the seventies, when the military was re- rebuilding post Vietnam, you know, the people that stayed in were very committed to rebuilding the military and making it a, you know, the force that it was capable of being. Um, and but we saw things change. I mean, generals, and in the last twenty years in the war and terror, the last twenty two years. We've just seen it taken to a new high, and in the last four or five years, we've seen un, it's unprecedented what we've seen with the general officer corps. Um, you know, and how do we grow a general? How, you know, how is a general grown? And you know, a lot of people believe that, that it's done through um, a broad level of experience, getting to do everything they possibly can, checking a lot of boxes, and. I think what we see now is that if you want to make a general officer, you've got to check so many boxes, you know, jump so many hoops that that's the whole purpose of what you're doing Mm -hmm. rather than the events that lead you to that. Um, And in order to do that, you you constantly have to be looking at that next job, that next school, that next joint position, um, rather than living in today and really, really becoming an expert and being – the it's, best. it's the process that becomes the, the challenge. Right. The process, I think, is corrupted right now. We've lost touch. Of, you know, some people think that uh, we don't grow generals the way we used to, or no. admirals, um, flag no. officers the way we used to, that they became proficient. You know, we, we, we always, you know, one of my favorite movies, yours too, a Navy movie with John Wayne. Oh, yeah. The guy was a warrior. He was. I mean, that's... Rock Tory. Rock Tory. Uh, I know that the fiction and all, but, you know... He but he was based on a real character. I mean, there, are, there, are, there those people were all based on people who lived, who were, uh, you know, rough and ready. Right. And that, we had them. That understood, understood. Um, that was it. Fighting war, mm-hmm. you know, fighting a Navy battle or fighting yeah. a ground battle. Um, you know, we had generals like Patton and others that never seemed to be able to um, fit behind a desk. Right, right. And, yeah. you know, in case of war, break glass type kind right. of kind of guys and gals. Well, and- Patton, you got to remember, was a guy who, was, when he was in Mexico, uh, he decided to strap a, uh, a machine gun onto a, a, a car, the back, back end of a car, and that was the first mechanized... Uh, Unit, right? I mean, <laughs> that was where mechanized warfare came from. That and, was George Patton with a little bit of initiative, right? And you know, we saw we were talking about Market Garden. We think possibly, you know, the whole plan was so out of character for Montgomery, but he always feeling like he was one upped by Patton, mm-hmm. um, right? For his exploits and uh, always competing with him, right. their egos, the narcissism, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, this is just this is just uh, what what I saw in the mid two thousands. You were still serving. Um, what I saw, anybody that had anything to do with Iraq, at least as far as army officers, senior officers were involved. When it came time for promotions, you know, the Bush administration didn't want to put them on display in Isn't Congress because they were afraid it would just become a referendum on going into Iraq. Oh, so we lost awful. a whole generation of quality senior officers and and i think we're we're living with it today i think you're right you know a lot of folks that got one and two stars are told you know hang up your spurs you're done because we won't send you to congress because we don't want it to become a referendum on what's going on in iraq i I gotta tell you i just uh, i just saw something on uh, linkedin where two of the best intel guys we had have just decided to get out they were having a a ceremony together to kind of like like watch them both go over the side 
And one of them was the, the, the director of Office of Naval Intelligence, Mike Studeman, who was, I thought, the best guy in intel uh, left in the Navy today. But he's getting out, and I think he's got one star or two stars. He's getting out. So why are these guys, with all their accomplishments, getting out? It's not a good sign. Yeah, and uh, you know the, and there's no doubt you get to the three and four star level. There's a political component to it. I mean, there just is definitely, um, definitely. But yeah. when when uh, the self advancement becomes the only priority, and I met some guys when I was young. I one person ended up with three stars. Um, I worked for him. Uh, he was an infantry battalion commander, and my unit got cross-attached to his. And you I knew him in before a, he was uh, Oh, yeah, I knew him. But this guy was so arrogant. <laughs> we were at a dinner once, and he took out his wallet. Yeah, he told me about this. Yeah, takes out his wallet, and he opens it up, and it's a bunch of lieutenants sitting around with this lieutenant colonel, and he opens it up. I'm going to be wearing those someday. And he had the stars pinned inside his wallet. you got to be kidding me. And everything that he did Jeez. his entire career was to that end. Wow. The decisions he made. And, wow. Um, the actions. Spooky. You know, the guy that I worked for, my battalion commander, you'd hear him on the He was an aviator in Vietnam. So you know how guy, aviators are on the radio. Very low-key. You know, they could be having their their aircraft shot off from under them, but they're always talking in a low-calm low voice. And you used to hear this other guy, the guy with the stars in his wallet, on the radio. And we're in the attack! You have Texas accent, and we're in the attack, and we're moving forward, and we're going to take the enemy. And, you know, and he'd be screaming into the radio, and you could hear his vehicle engine revving in the background. And mm. it was just... Uh, and that guy ended up with three stars. I mean, that's what he wanted. That was my buddy. You know, my battalion commander didn't get a star. Now, he's unbelievably successful business person after he got out of the military. It was their loss losing him. It's funny because one of my, uh, you know, I, I, I served, uh, uh, I had uh, three different COs in my A6 squadron. The first one when I got there, he, he went on to uh, uh, work as the Commodore, they call him, at the medium attack wing. Uh, and he didn't make Admiral uh, Rob Weber, but he had the distinguished service uh service cross for uh, the 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 uh, libya strike but you know he ended up getting out as a captain my next uh ceo uh, uh craig Schooning, uh you know he made captain and they made him the the matt wing C- commodore but he said to me one time he says well i'm, I'm never going to make admiral and i looked at him like you got to be kidding me how could you not make it admiral but he didn't make admiral but the, the guy that made admiral was the third guy uh ralph suggs Benny Suggs. Everybody knew Benny was really uh, politically correct, uh, not co- connected, but and he was a real rah rah guy. I mean, really competent. But and he ended up being, I think, the uh, director of marketing later on at Harley Davidson, uh, and a good guy. But we all knew that Benny was the guy that was going to make flag. Yeah, I the three best guys I worked for in the army as a young officer, the three best officers I worked for. All made 06 and never made general. And I, to this day, it just, all three of them, unbelievable successes after the military. Just, uh, they were just, yeah. you know, for some reason they didn't fit that mold yeah. that, that, of what the military was, what the army was looking for, for, for generals. And, but these guys were just great at what they did. Yeah, they were. So, um, always interesting. I guess you and I are old enough now. We have some perspective, 30 or 40 years of perspective of watching yeah. people come and go. Um, but uh, we, we really are not doing ourselves a service with the, the way we're rearing officers 
right now. And and I making, think when you get these, when you get to have these uh, get-togethers with the old aviators or old uh, warriors, they really appreciate the old timers who did, you know, do the hard, arduous jobs, and uh, and and did combat and survived combat. Um, I think that there's an appreciation for what they did without being political back right. in the day. Right. Um, I think maybe they lament the fact that things have gotten where they are now. Yeah. It's, so it's difficult. It is. It's a tough. It's a tough thing. So we're, you know, I guess it gives us plenty to talk about though on Valor Radio. It <laughs> as sure time does. Goes by as we see. Uh, and Bob, the answer to your question: What can we do to change things? I'm not sure right now. I'm not I, either. Uh, I I think. I think there's... You know, the best thing they could probably do is have people go back and read history. Right. And they're not doing it. Right. They really need to have go back and read what these guys, these men and women were all about, the ones who pioneered. Yeah, but there's, there's, there's an underlying reason why this is happening. This is this is all part of a piece. You know, not sure. to, not to in, in, engage in conspiracy theories, but about what's happening with the global left. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. You're right about that. Yeah. So... Well, I just, uh, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's something that, like I said, gives us plenty to talk about here on Valor Radio. I'm hearing some music, so that means we have to bring it to an end for this week. Uh, let's keep our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coasties, guardians uh, in our thoughts and in our prayers. We'll see you next week on Valor Radio. God bless. Be a lover to their mother, everything to everyone. Up and at them bright and early I'm all business in my suit Yeah, I'm dressed up for success From my head down to my boots I don't do it for the money